0: Good morning, everybody. (laughs) My name is Amber. And as I'm sure you can appreciate with a bit of humor this morning, if we haven't met yet, I'm 34 and a half weeks pregnant. (laughs) And I'm due just before Labor Day, and that first line was talking about labor pain. So tell you what, I appreciate a senior pastor who's got a really good sense of humor. Roger texted me a couple months ago, and he's like, hey, do you want to preach on this passage this morning? I'm like, how ironic. <laughs> so I can promise you this message may be a little memorable this morning just because of the fact, I don't know how often you've ever heard a very large pregnant woman preach before, um, but I'm here for you. Uh, but I promise not to make it any more memorable than that, okay? There will be no laboring up here in Jesus' name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and as Doug was saying, if you want to pray for me and Carrie and my sister, and there's like a handful of us here. This is like the hottest summer ever. Can we just agree? So think of us pregos in this hottest summer ever and pray for us. Um, but yes. So welcome this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us online as well. Um, so this message um, is titled, Grace to the Baron, this morning. And um, the passage that we just read out of Galatians 4, um, you know, if you're new to the Bible or Bible study, I think it's one that can be easy to trip up on because it's, there's allegory in there, there's typology in there. If, if you're new to it, it maybe just sounds like a little bit of gibberish with a bunch of names attached, like what is going on there? Or even if you're a little familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah, and Hagar, Isaac, and Ishmael, um, it it may be just sounding a little bit like like rambling. But um, Paul here, um, we've been in this series on Galatians, which I've just been loving uh, this summer. Paul is talking about their faith. He's talking about grace. He's talking about their desire or their tendency to keep going back to the law and going back to legalism and practicing that way. And he says right at the beginning, almost like an exasperation, he says, I feel like I'm going through labor pains again for you. Um, He's, you know, Paul, the great evangelizer, you know, he, he has said before his zeal, his passion, his desire for them to know Jesus, to know him crucified, to know the freedom that they have. He's been laboring as if he's, like, you know, having a baby for them. Um, and he's come so far. They've known Jesus. They've walked in freedom. And after all of that, they're going back to these practices of the law and they're going back to bondage. So he's saying, oh, it's like I'm going through labor all over again. And I don't know about you guys, but I would be pretty upset if I had to give labor twice for just one baby. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> so what Paul is going to do here is he's going to like pull out the big guns in his argument. He's already talked about Abraham before, but now he's going to talk about Abraham again. Abraham is like, like he, gets, he gets their attention when he's talking to this audience because this is the one they look up to. He is the patriarch of the faith. Um, but then he's going to pull in this this other argument, um, allegory and typology. And he's going to kind of turn their, their assumptions on their head um, because they look to Abraham as the father of their faith and they look to Sarah. But he's going to say, actually, the way you're acting, the way you're behaving right now is like you're, you're looking to Hagar. Um, and that's going to surprise them. And I'll, um, I'll explain in a bit why. Um, but first, just to explain real quick what's happening here with typology and allegory. This is Paul... Um, New Testament author who is making this sort of interpretation when we see typology in scripture it's when details in a story like people places um, events traditions things like that serve as a prototype or a foreshadowing of things to come so something similar in the present or later on in scripture that's like a fulfillment or it's a completion, or maybe it's a repeat of some big aspect of the salvation story. So an example of this is like when we see um, Moses wandering in the wilderness and the people of Israel get really, really sick. So he makes a bronze serpent, he sticks it on a pole and he lifts it up. This is where we get the imagery of like medicine today. And all the people who are sick, they just look up to this serpent on a pole and they are healed. And this is like a type, of Jesus Christ later on. Jesus Christ, who is raised up on the cross, all of us who are sick and dead in our sins, we look to him and we are saved. So that's an example of typology. Allegory um, is similar, not quite the same. An allegory is when there is a primary understanding of the text on the surface. But then there is a, an interpretation that offers like a deeper understanding of the text, almost like a hidden meeting underneath that then the interpretation brings to light. So what we see in this text is actually a combination of the two. And if I can just be quick to say that in doing really diligent and careful Bible study, these two are actually pretty few and far in between in Scripture. But Paul himself, writer of the New Testament, is is making this interpretation. So it's a combination of the two. So let's unpack the text that's happening here. And actually going back, like background information, we have our main characters. Paul is talking about Abraham. Right, he's the patriarch of the faith. Abraham is actually just this nobody of a guy, right, in the land of Ur. God calls him out with his wife Sarah. He says, "Go, um, go to a land I will show you." He says, hey, I want to make a covenant with you. I want to bless you. I want to make you a great nation. I want to give you descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Abraham, the nobody, the God of the universe, approaches him and says, I want to be in relationship with you. All you have to do is simply follow me and believe. Just believe. Then there's Sarah. Sarah is Abraham's wife. When we we're first introduced to, their cup, to this couple, they're already married and we're told that Sarah is barren. She is unable to have children. In fact, when God repeatedly comes to them and says, I want to bless you. I'm going to give you all these descendants. They have a really hard time believing for many, many, many years. Even harder as the years pass that um, God's promises are going to come true. Um, in fact... Um, they have such trouble believing that at one point they try to like circumvent God's promise and have um, this descendant come through Hagar. Hagar is our next character. She is a maidservant to Sarah. She is Egyptian. She's been been purchased by them as their slave. And she serves Sarah her whole life. Um, At some point in waiting for this promise, it's decided that Hagar is going to be given to Abraham to try to produce an heir through her, since Sarah is unable. This is actually kind of a common practice in um, ancient times, but that is what happens. So, Hagar then becomes the mother of Ishmael, our next character. Abraham and Hagar have Ishmael. She does get pregnant. For a while, it seems that Abraham and Sarah actually believe maybe this was the way that God intended for this to be fulfilled is through Ishmael. Um, But it's not. Abraham's seed, yes, but not Sarah's seed. That's not where the promise came. And then Ishmael is actually a teenager when God comes to Abraham and Sarah again and says, hey, remember that promise? Next year at this time, you will have a son. And that son is Isaac. He is our last character. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He is supernaturally born, as by this point, Abraham and Sarah are well beyond childbearing years. And one, of the, one other important piece of this plot that Paul will then talk about is that um, at some point along in the story, both um, Hagar, when Sarah is pregnant, and Ishmael, When he's a teen and Isaac is about two or three years old, they both are taunting and mocking, and scripture says, persecuting Sarah and Isaac. Sarah gets so upset at this, she says, they will not receive the inheritance, and she actually casts them off. And that's an important part that Paul will talk about. So now to unpack the allegory. If we were to give this message, like, some sort of alternative title today, it would be something like this. (laughs) Who's your mama? (laughs) Or (laughs) who's your spiritual mama? (laughs) Who's your spiritual mama? Um, This would actually make a good Mother's Day message, I think. But Paul is essentially saying, look, we all know Abraham is our father. We all claim him. You know, great father of the faith, our patriarch. We look up to him so much. Um... But do we also claim Sarah? We, we do literally, like physically, she is, she is our um, ancestor. But do we claim her spiritually? Do we claim Sarah spiritually is what Paul is saying. Because the way that you're wanting to go back to these legalistic practices and the law and earn this great salvation by your own efforts is much like turning away from the promises of God that you received in Sarah and turning back to Hagar. So you're acting like Hagar is your spiritual mother. So Paul is actually going to draw a comparison between these two women. And I've got this all in a kind of organized chart as Paul likes to ramble. He's good at that. But he's going to compare these two women and all that they represent. There are five sets of twos, two mothers, two sons, representing two covenants, two mountains that those were given on, Mount Sinai, and it's implied, Mount Zion, where God's presence is. Um, And then two cities, the present Jerusalem and the heavenly one. So I'll explain these or unpack them real quick here. Who's your spiritual mama? (laughs) If your spiritual mama is Hagar... She is the slave woman. She gives birth to Ishmael as a result of human effort and not as a result of trusting in what God had said because God didn't say Hagar. God said Sarah. She represents the old covenant that's given on Mount Sinai, the old covenant of the law, Judaism, that then becomes centered in the earthly city of Jerusalem. That's where all the Jews go and practice (laughs) sacrifices all the do's and don'ts that the law requires and they do it forever and ever and ever it's not freedom it's bondage it's slavery because it's never enough it never ends hagar represents being in slavery under the law and paul is making this point just as hagar and ishmael were both slaves so also are all of those who seek to be made right with god by their own efforts But then let's look at Sarah, the other column. Sarah was the free woman. Sarah gives birth to Isaac not by her own effort, but by simply believing in faith that God actually keeps his promise. Isaac was born not by human effort, but the text literally says Isaac was born by the power of the Spirit. Supernaturally, by the power of the Spirit not by our own efforts. Sarah represents the new covenant coming from or given by the heavenly Jerusalem. This is like the final say-so, right? This is coming from the throne of God himself. God's ultimate plan of redeeming fallen man through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, bringing the gift of salvation to the world. Not something we earn, but the gift This plan was set in motion long before God ever called Abraham. Sarah represents Christianity. She doesn't have to strive to earn God's promises ever or make his blessings come to pass on her own. She literally just gets to wait and receive it with open arms. This is Sarah. So, (laughs) who would you say is your spiritual mama? Is it Sarah or is it Hagar? If we profess to be people of faith then yes, it is Sarah. And here's why this is so important. (laughs) We carry our mama's DNA in us. We will reproduce what we have. Like begets like. Faith will beget faith. And striving will beget striving. We carry our mama's DNA and we will reproduce what we have. Like will beget like. Our faith will bring faith, and our striving will bring forever striving. What you receive and possess will eventually give birth. (laughs) If you're believing in faith, it will keep on increasing. If you're striving, you will forever be striving. 2 Corinthians 1 20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. How many of us can say just a hearty amen to the promises of God this morning? This is the glory of the gospel. We don't have to do anything we can stand and receive it with open arms. And Jesus just gives it all to us by his goodness. And I love this. Paul then in this passage will go on and he will quote Isaiah 54. It says this, sing, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. Break into loud and joyful song, O Jerusalem, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband, says the Lord. And I'll actually keep going here. It says, in Enlarge your house. Build an addition. AKA live in faith. Live in great faith. Put action to your faith. Spread out your home and spare no expense. For you will soon be bursting at the seams. Your descendants will occupy other nations and resettle the ruined cities. Fear not. You will no longer live in shame. Do not be afraid. There is no more disgrace for you. So this is probably my favorite portion of this whole thing and where we get the title grace for the barren. We find this concept all throughout scripture. Um, just the idea of saying rejoice. Rejoice everyone who around you who find that you are barren in some form or another. Your hands are empty. You have nothing to offer. You're a nobody. Your soul is empty. Rejoice because the God of the universe has looked on you and has chosen you and says, hey, I want to bless you. I want to fill your hands. I want to fill your souls. I want to fill your wombs. I want to fill your empty barns. You have nothing, but guess what? The God who keeps promises is the one who has just made one to you. So rejoice. somebody say amen, (laughs) rejoice Sarah, rejoice Abraham, you may be, you know, standing there thinking that you have nothing, but I've just made a promise, and it's going to come, so get ready, build your barns, (laughs) expand expand your tents, rejoice life church, rejoice friend in this room, if you feel like you have nothing, God is about to bring you more than you have ever seen. We are all barren, like Sarah. We're all barren. We're all nobodies, like Abraham. We have nothing to offer. And I love that at no point in these stories of these, all these characters, at no point have they ever, like, done anything before God came to them, during the time that God came, or after the promises were fulfilled. Like, at no point did they ever do anything to, like, merit or earn God's favor. At no point. In fact, they're all, like, screwing up. <laughs> Sarah laughs in disbelief. Abraham lies. Um, obviously, they they try to do things by their own efforts and go through Hagar. Um, even Hagar, even Hagar is herself. And I love this. If we can just, like, pause for a second and, like, step away from the, al- from the allegory. We see over and over again um, the Lord bringing people in who are, who don't belong. like They have not been promised the covenant, but God brings them in and makes them part of their family, part of his family. Um, Even with Hagar, even though the, the covenant doesn't come to her, he finds her when she's been cast away. She recognizes him as the God who sees me. God says, I will still bless you. I see you. I will still bless you. I will take care of you. Your son, Ishmael, he will also have descendants. They may not have been part of that covenant line, but God still blesses them. Then we see, like, Ruth, the Moabitess. She wasn't supposed to be part of God's family, but God grafts her in. Um, uh, Rahab, the harlot, she wasn't supposed to be part of the <laughs> part of God's family, but God grafts her in. Us as Gentiles, all of us, <laughs> we're not supposed to be part of God's family, but in His kindness and mercy and compassion, us who have nothing to offer, He promises us the world and invites us in. Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. back to our Galatians passage. Paul is now going to move on. He's still in the allegory. He says, you are children of the promise, but you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law. Just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the spirit. But what do the scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son, For the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. I mentioned earlier that we see at two different points, Hagar and Ishmael start to mock and ridicule Sarah, who's just waiting there with an empty womb and empty hands and then mocking Isaac, who's, who's just real little, um, taunting, mocking. And Paul actually uh, points to this and calls it, it's like persecution. And in the same way, Paul says this happens today with you believers. There is a taunting, a comparison, mockery sometimes those who choose to walk by faith, instead of by their own efforts. We're pretty much promised we're going to receive this. People who try to live by their own efforts will very frequently speak, even without knowing it, but speak shame and condemnation towards you relentlessly. Has anybody ever been should on? You know what I mean? This is honestly one of my favorite expressions, even though it's a little tongue-in-cheek. But if you have people around here, you, you're just like around you who are constantly reminding you what you should be doing, how you should be, how you should act. Real Christians are like this, and they don't do that. Like they're shoulding all over you. Um, now you get it.) <laughs> um, I honestly think it's a helpful analogy because, like, it's about as helpful as what it sounds like, you know? Um, And, you know, even though you may be doing all the right things, but if you're doing it because you should... It's not a good motivator. It's not coming from the inside, from the Lord speaking to you and transforming you from the inside out. It's coming from an external motivator of someone who is speaking shame and condemnation over you and saying, you should. (laughs) Or it's like, twin, ought to. You ought to. Same thing. (laughs) Practically speaking, if we could all just choose we're not going to live by shoulds, I think we'd be a whole lot better off. So Paul says you are now being persecuted. If you choose to simply believe in the promises of God and if we choose to lean hard into his grace to transform us, we will experience Um, This kind of persecution, this kind of pressure, this kind of shame, mocking um, from, you know, both the world at large, but unfortunately, even from like our half-siblings, right, Uh, within the church, unfortunately. Um, One of our commentators said this, it was the Jews who killed the prophets, not the Gentiles. It was the Pharisees and other religious leaders who opposed Jesus and instigated his execution. Paul's fiercest opponents were the fanatically religious Judaizers. Today, the greatest enemies of the believing church are found among the members of the unbelieving church, the greatest opposition emanating from the pulpits and church hierarchies. Ouch. That's a really harsh quote, but honestly, I think it's so easy to do. I think it's so easy to do. Like, we can come to Jesus by faith— and then at some point, I, for whatever reason, picking up shame and condemnation, or just like feeling like, I need to look like Jesus. <laughs> I need to do this all myself. Um, we can become just like Judaizers and then we're shooting all over other people around us. It really is sobering. But what does Scripture say? This last verse that we just read from Isaiah 54:4: Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Do not be afraid. There is no more disgrace for you. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We were never intended to live with shame. Never. Never. And Paul is ruthless about this. He is essentially saying, hey, that Ishmael voice That Ishmael spirit, it will will never stop spewing out shame and condemnation and mockery toward you if you are trying to believe in faith in Jesus Christ. It will never stop. But we have got to become relentless about booting shame out of our lives, about casting it out far away. Because because coming to Christ by our own own efforts, we cannot receive the inheritance he has for us by our own efforts is through jesus alone so we have to be ruthless about it paul is saying get rid of the law as your guide and all your attempts to keep the law for you can never share in the inheritance of the lavish grace of jesus if you do we have got to learn to cast off shame in every form that it comes it will not quit it will forever try to compete with our freedom and discredit what's rightfully ours and try to rob it from us. Bondage and freedom cannot coexist. So how do we do this practically? <laughs> I mean, it sounds nice and all. Because, um, like, we can't, it's not like we can, like, literally cast people away from our presence. You know? <laughs> like, you're always, like, speaking shame on me. Like, cast thee away. <laughs> like, we can't, we can't do that. Um, but we, we do have to learn how to silence those voices around us. And so all I can think of to explain this this morning is just to sort of send you away with a visual in combating shame. Scripture describes Satan as an accuser of the brethren. Right? It's like relentless this shame and condemnation voice. Um, Anybody ever been to New York City? Raise your hand. Ever been there? (laughs) Um, I know there's like a million things to see there, but has anyone ever seen the charging bull statue that's on Broadway? One person. Anybody else? Two. (laughs) So we've got a picture of it. Um, There's a sculptor who made this statue of a charging bull. Um, and it, it's meant to represent, like, the the uh, the bull stock market, right? And I guess he made it being inspired after, like, the Great Depression when, you know, everyone, like, like was working really hard to financially come out of the pits of the Depression and, um, you know, and then the finances came roaring back. So it's, like, it's strength, it's power, it's fierce. Look at that thing. Okay, so actually... This thing is, like, larger than life, right? If you're, if I was standing next to it, like, I think the nose would be, like, right here. It's just very, very large, and it's intimidating looking, right? Um, <laughs> this is something, I mean, it's just a statue, but, like, you you look at that and you're like, this is something I need to keep my distance from. <laughs> like, run away, <laughs> you know? Like, don't make it mad. This could tear me limb from limb. Um, and, and I see that bull, and... And to me, I, this is how I picture like an Ishmael voice and an Ishmael spirit. Like that shame and condemnation that's always speaking to you. That's like, I'm here to intimidate you. You're not doing good enough. You need to do more. Look, I got here by my own efforts. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. <laughs> um, it's like trying to intimidate you. But then, and this is like my favorite thing, about 20 to 30 feet away from this raging, charging bull statue stands another sculpture called Fearless Girl. You guys. I love this so much. Literally the first time I ever saw this, I bawled my eyes out. That little thing. Uh, I don't know how old that girl is. She's called Fearless Girl for a reason. And this is how I picture us standing up to voices of shame in our life, like literally. Because how does she compete with the strength of that bull? She doesn't. She would be torn to shreds in a second. She doesn't have any strength to offer in herself. She hasn't like, like she can't even compete. But she is fearless. She's feisty. She's unafraid. Undaunted. It's like I'm not gonna be intimidated by you. There's some pictures of her standing standing by herself. You can kind of get a picture of her face. Like she's like calm, cool, collected. Look at that back. Like <laughs> probably looks funny when a prego does it, but <laughs> like you know what I mean? Like, like her posture is not like, I think so. Like, she's got a strong backbone. Her chin is lifted up. Right? She is totally unafraid. She's like, bring it on. <laughs> Come at me, bro. You know, <laughs> like, and really, if I could give us a visual this morning of what it looks like to be someone like an Isaac and like a Sarah, who's like, I got nothing. I'm like this cute little frail little girl <laughs> you know like maybe I feel weak in my own I got nothing to offer but I have faith like a child and Jesus is the lifter of my head and he's the one who made the promise to me and I don't care what kind of intimidation you want to bring at me you scary raging bull <laughs> like I'm gonna stand here totally fearless and unafraid I'm going to say, no, you will not shame me. No, I am a child of God. No, I am enough. Me and all my weakness and all my human frailty, I am enough. I love that picture. She's defiant. She is shameless. We are meant to be shameless like that. Psalm 3:3, as we wrap up this morning, it says, But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. In the <laughs> prego brain, um, our armor, put on the full armor of God, we raise our shield of faith you oh lord are a shield around me my faith is the thing that shields me you are my glory the opposite of shame you are my glory the one who holds my head high this is the same verse in other translations that says you are the lifter of my head Our worship team is going to come this morning. I'm going to close in prayer. And actually, if you want to stand with me this morning. um, Who's your spiritual mama? (laughs) Are you trying to earn all the goodness of God by your own efforts, by doing what you're supposed to be doing? By following all the rules? Or are you just showing up as you are? Take me as I am, Lord. I got nothing. You have everything. And yet you offer it to me and just believing in faith to receive it. Even if you are, are you allowing voices around you that are constantly putting pressure on you or saying, that's not good enough? You are somehow unworthy, not good enough to receive what God has promised to you and you need to fix it in order to receive it. How are you responding to that voice of shame? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder, God, not just now, but before Before you ever came to Abraham, you had in mind to rescue us, to give us everything when we have nothing to give ourselves. You had in mind to be the lifter of our heads. You had in mind to strengthen the feeble knees, to give us a backbone, to fill us with a resounding faith, not a faith in ourselves, but a faith in you, your power, your faithfulness, you who keep your promises. Help us to trust that today.